Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. This week, we have a conversation with Dr. Daria Shabavalava. Daria is a lecturer in energy law and the co-director of the Aberdeen University Centre for Energy Law, Scotland. Her current research examines climate change and energy law, indigenous rights and the effectiveness of international law. Daria holds a PhD from the University of Aberdeen and a Master of Laws from the University of Groningen and the National Law Academy of Ukraine. Daria is also a Fellow of the Higher Education Academy, as well as a member of the World Commission of Environmental Law and International Law Association. Hello and welcome. I'm Romain Schiffer. And I'm Saga Helgesen, and I'm really excited to be joining the team. For this podcast, we're joined by Dr. Daria Shapovalova, who's come on the podcast to chat with us about her research in a recent article she published last year in November 2020 called Arctic Petroleum and the Two Degrees Celsius Goal, a Case for Accountability for Fossil Fuel Supply. It's really a pleasure having you on the podcast, Daria. Thank you so much, Roman. It's very nice uh, to be here. And it's one of those rare occasions where my name is pronounced correctly. So it's double nice uh, to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I've been following and participating in the work of the Arctic Institute for uh, for a few years now. And I'm really uh, pleased to be here to chat about my work. I'm so glad about this. I'm so glad I got your name right as well. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit more about you? So my name is Daria. I am, I'm from Ukraine and I live in Scotland now uh, in Aberdeen. Uh, I'm a lecturer in energy law and the co-director of the Aberdeen University Centre for Energy Law. I, I've been working at Aberdeen for the past, I think, four years now. Um, and I really enjoy my work. My work is mostly um, on environmental law and human rights. I try to look at how international law and policy can be effective or should be effective in regulating regulating private actors to protect environment and to protect human rights. And from my PhD, my work took me to the Arctic. And that has been uh, my big passion ever since. I wrote and published quite a lot on the uh, oil and gas activities in the Arctic, including the environmental regulation on those activities, things like oil spills and safety issues. And uh, for the past year, I've been working on uh, climate change. So I wrote something on the common but differentiated responsibilities principle. And this idea that that is poured more in the article about um, the effects of experts uh, of fossil fuels is something that I have first thought about during my thesis. And there was not a lot of literature on it back then. So that was around um, 2013, 2014. But I was really pleased to see that uh, it has become a much more talked about issue now. And there has been quite a lot of really interesting publications on it, not so much from law, but from policy, from economics, uh, from natural science. And I finally uh, decided to put my um, ideas into, um, into one coherent, hopefully, uh, paper. So uh, here we are. That's so great. And I love hearing a little bit more about, you know, how you came and, and what you're up to these days, because we love, uh, we think it's really interesting to get to know researchers more personally. Mm. Um, do you think you could tell us just a little bit more about sort of how you, 
how you became interested in the Arctic and what sort of sparked your desire to pursue this field. Yes, thank you, Saga. So um, I grew up in a small town called Yalta. Uh, people will know it now because it's in Crimea, uh, and now people know Crimea. If I told someone I was from Crimea, uh, you know, 10 years ago, people would just look at me funny and ask where. Uh, but now everyone knows where that is. It's a beautiful, um, beautiful city on the Black Sea, and... Um, I did not see a lot of snow and ice uh, back there. So uh, the Arctic and the Antarctic uh, both were uh, unimaginable um, spaces for me. And then when I went to do my um, LLM, my master's degree in Groningen in the Netherlands, we had a presentation in our international environmental law course on uh, protection of polar environment. And I talked about Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, and then um, I decided that I wanted to pursue a PhD and uh, my wonderful friend and, and colleague, um, Professor Anatol Butkana works in, in Hong Kong, um, who worked at Aberdeen at the time, said, well, why don't you write something about the Arctic um, and send us a proposal? So I started looking into it. And um, back then, so that's 2012, the Arctic oil and gas was a big hot topic. And I wrote my proposal about that. Um, I don't think I had much clue at the time, to be honest. Uh, I looked at my proposal very recently and um, I was appalled and don't, don't want to share that with anyone ever. Uh, but I was really passionate about this project. And um, when I got the scholarship to pursue my PhD studies uh, in Aberdeen, focusing on the Arctic environment, I was thrilled and I was very grateful for the opportunity. So I moved uh, to Aberdeen then. And um after, well, as I was finishing my PhD, a job came up um, in energy law and I applied for it. And again, the University of Aberdeen has extended its credit of trust to me and um, accepted me for, for this job. In terms of, you know, how I'm doing these days, it's it's a bit challenging. And I think uh, any person who's a carer will understand me at the time. I have a three-year-old daughter uh, who's wonderful and I love her very much, who is making my days very fun. Uh, not a lot of work is getting done. This is probably the first real work thing I've I've done properly um, this whole week. Uh, but I really also am grateful and enjoy um, having this time with her. Normally, you know, she would be in the nursery and I would be at work. Um, so that's, that's how it is. Quite a journey from Yalta to, to Aberdeen. Thanks for sharing this with us. Now, let's talk about the article you wrote for the Climate Law Journal in 2020. You explore the idea that the climatic effects of oil and gas development in the Arctic are, let's say, inconsistent with global climate goals. Mm -hmm. Could you take us through the article and through your argument? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the the idea that the Arctic oil and gas um, development of these resources and the subsequent uh, use of these resources is inconsistent with global climate goals is not something that I came up with, of course, and I, I wouldn't be able to with uh, my field being law. Um, but in the fifth assessment already uh, from the um, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we have seen that the estimate of the total fossil fuel reserves, so this is uh, oil, gas, and coal, um, they contain sufficient carbon uh, to yield if they are released, um, climate change that is um, in, in commensurate with uh, keeping the global warming 
to less than two degrees Celsius, which is our Paris Agreement goal. Um, and then there's been more research on this that looked at um, the geographical distribution of the resources. And in a particular insightful paper published in Nature Journal, um, Atkins and McLeod look at the geographical distribution and uh, they support the statement in the IPCC and say that the development of resources in the Arctic and any increase of uh, unconventional uh, oil production, such as shale oil, for example, are incommensurate with these efforts to limit the average global warming uh, to two degrees Celsius. So now that we have this information that we cannot uh, burn uh, all our Arctic oil and gas reserves, what do we do with it? And the issue is we haven't really done anything with it. We are just going ahead with the climate change regime that we have. And the climate change regime that we have and we have been building since 1992 on the adoption of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is operating in a very specific way. Uh, it is operating in a way in which we look at uh, greenhouse gas emissions within the territory of a state. And each state is responsible for emissions which happen in its territory. And the regulation has been done um, in different ways. So when the UNFCCC was just adopted, we didn't have any particular uh, quantitative goals. We had the overall goal to stabilize our greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. And we had some general obligations to create inventories of emissions. Uh, we have established the principle of common but differentiated responsibility and respective capability and introduced this general commitment to reduce emissions. And then we had the Kyoto Protocol where we said we will have some quantitative emission um, targets for states, uh, which will be uh, established only for economically developed states, and um, they will depend on the range of factors. But again, this is all just for the emissions. We didn't really look at the production side um, of fossil fuels. And now we are in the Paris Agreement era since 2015, um, and the obligations and their nature has changed once again. So we no longer have top-down uh, quantitative targets imposed by a climate treaty, but we have um, an obligation for all of the states, uh, regardless of the state of economic development, to uh, submit every five years nationally determined contributions or NDCs, which are reports in which states um, make pledges um, about their level of ambition uh, to mitigate um, climate change um, and uh, to talk about specific sectors. So even once they make these pledges, they do not have to achieve them, but rather pursue domestic mitigation measures with the aim of achieving the objectives of such contributions. But again, all of this is centered on the emissions within the territory of the state. So what, is, what it creates is a situation in which countries like the UK, countries like Norway, um, can make very ambitious climate goals um, and, and pledge to be zero uh, carbon by 2045 or 2050 or earlier, while at the same time um, not um, creating any effects on the production of fossil fuels and perhaps using it as, a, um, as an excuse to export fossil fuels. So in Norway, most of the um, oil and gas is being produced is going on export. Now, does does it increase emissions in Norway a little bit because the production activities do uh, do have some emissions associated with them, but most of the emissions occur 
when these fossil fuels are being burned. And when they're being burned outside of Norway, um, the Norwegian government argues that does not really uh, make any impact uh, on Norwegian climate goals. So in my paper, I first try to set out uh, set out the problem and explain why why it is a problem, and then I review the um, the case that was heard in Norwegian courts uh, that was brought by two environmental NGOs um, to try and um, argue that the petroleum licenses that have been um, granted by the Norwegian government uh, are not valid and um, they use the Norwegian constitution, Article 112 on environmental rights uh, to uh, to say that the climate effects uh, from this production activities are incommensurate with this article as well. And um, the case had been decided in favour um, of the government um, in the district court and the court of appeal and just very recently um, in the Supreme Court as well. And the English translation of the Supreme Court's decision uh, was just um, sent to me today uh, on Twitter, uh, thanks to Arctic Twitter, uh, by a representative of, of Greenpeace. So there is now this unofficial translation and I look forward to analyzing it in more detail, but just from, from a quick skim of that decision, um, it seems like the Norwegian government and, and the Supreme Court both agree um, that um, it is only the environmental effects in Norway that fall under Article 112 which makes sense uh, fr from the interpretation of the article. Um, but uh, emissions abroad uh, do not really have any, any influence on the uh, powers of the Norwegian government to uh, grant licenses. So uh, in my paper, I uh, critically analyze um, the decision of the appeals court and I make some arguments as to why perhaps some of the um, Conclusions that the court is making are, are not satisfactory or perhaps could be explored a bit further. Um, and in particular, I focus on the um, on these extended climate effects of uh, production activities uh, and their inclusion in environmental impact assessment. Um, there, there's a number of arguments that are made about um, the scope of the environmental impact assessment, um, which uh, which are not very well clarified. And there's another argument that is made um, that if this, um, if the oil and gas is not produced in Norway, it will be produced somewhere else, uh, which is a oversimplification uh, of, um, of the situation and could be also explored further. So I try to look at these um, in more detail in my article and then I look at it in the Arctic context. So I don't just look at Norway, I also look at uh, Russia, Canada, and the United States and Greenland. And then I uh, I try not to make a very controversial argument, uh, I would think. I'm not saying that any expert in any production is illegal. What I'm trying to say is that we need to apply the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, which means that when authorizing any new development, we need to look at the historical contribution of a state uh, to global climate change. We need to look at present capabilities. So how, um, to, to put it simply, how much does a state really need these resources? Whether these resources constitute a large part of uh, the state's GDP, for example. Um, and um, to make an informed uh, decision on this, 
to include full extent of climate impacts of the production, including any potential exported emissions, into the environmental impact assessment. And my ultimate recommendations is not to stop expert, but rather to provide the public with the information. And the two recommendations that I make is to first um, include these full effects into environmental impact assessment, and the second to include it into reporting procedures under the Paris Agreement. So because the Paris Agreement does not impose quantitative emission targets, instead it creates a very intricate network of um, reporting obligations and, and transparency framework, which allows for this extended um, reporting. And I believe that accountability in this case comes from um, providing the public and providing with a society with the full information um, on how these activities will impact the environment, perhaps not in the country of production, but somewhere else. That was a bit of a long-winded a description. No, I think that was a good thorough summary. I think that's something you expect from a lawyer. Like give the lawyer <laughs> give a lawyer the floor and they'll they'll speak to you for like more than, than thirty mm. minutes. I'm not sure you mentioned it, uh, but the name of the case, the Norwegian case, is the famous people against Arctic oil case came in into being at the I think it was twenty sixteen or twenty eighteen, a couple of years 2016 ago. Twenty sixteen is the is the first instance one. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and that uh, you now, as you said, we've we've had the uh, Supreme Court decision. So yeah, mm-hmm. if for anyone who wants to read about it, it's the famous people against Arctic oil, and I think there was even a podcast series made about it uh, a few mm-hmm. years ago as well. Not by us, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not you know, it's it's not a um, a far fetched idea. We we talk about uh, regulation of supply quite a lot. Um, so, for example, the World Bank um, said that they would no longer finance fossil fuel projects unless there are exceptional circumstances uh, and only for gas and only for poorest countries where there is a clear benefit in terms of um, energy access. Um, there's quite a lot of uh, work in energy economics on this, um, including a seminal work by Hans Wernersen called Green Paradox. Um, there's been a couple of very interesting um, special issues in journals such as uh, climatic change and climate policy on, on fossil fuel supply. There's quite a lot of good work being done um, in Finland um, by uh, Haravanasel and Kati Kulavesi on uh, fossil fuel supply, especially as it uh, pertains to fossil fuel subsidies, for example. So uh, there's quite a, lo- a lot of work being done already, um, and I think that this case, um, this case was a really interesting idea. But I think because it was so centered on the article from the constitution, it was limited only to any effects that could occur within Norway uh, because of how this article was phrased, is phrased, um, but. Um, I think that the the claimants tried to bring an international element um, into this by referring to the European Convention on Human Rights later, uh, try to maybe piggyback on some of the agenda success, uh, but that was not received favorably by the court. Yeah, to use Article Two and Article Eight, I think, of mm-hmm. um, European Convention on, on Human Rights, and uh, which which has been, I mean, uh, has been a broad article, especially Article Eight, and broadly used by the court, but unfortunately has been not very successful. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's just so interesting. Your article it talks about natural resource exploration in a different light. You know, I ha- I had never really thought about you know the production side versus the supply side, and you talk about you know entailed 
climatic effects and how they mm-hmm. haven't really been included in the framework sort of up up until now it makes me wonder if you could talk through um in in your opinion and what you talk about in the article what would you say needs to be done to improve or to better match you know these climate effects of oil and gas development to be to include them more in the framework uh, thank you, Saga. To be honest, I think the main uh, thing that needs to happen is the shift in political approach, because it seems to be more and more that the the law is not really blocking the inclusion of of these effects uh, at the moment, but it's the the political approach that does. So, um, if we look into the environmental impact assessments um, of the Arctic developments, and and I've looked at quite a few from the, the ones that are available. Um, we see that in the U.S., for example, um, we did not really even think about including these entailed or extended um, climate effects of oil production before. But after the IPCC report came out, we see we see them being mentioned. So in the U.S., the, the process of environmental impact assessment is quite uh, public. So uh, after the statement is prepared, there's an opportunity for, for the public to comment and to query uh, the data that is presented. Um, and for example, uh, I think it's for the Liberty Field, um, the regulator was asked, you know, are you going to um, look into what would be the consequence of, of opening um, the Liberty Field and um, and then also using these resources. And here the regulator said that they disagree with the notion that producing oil from this prospect would preclude the world from meeting greenhouse gas reduction goals and would uh, lock in any specific negative effects associated with climate change. And they say, you know, there is a finite amount of oil and liberty prospect and it's not enough to demonstratively um, influence climate change. And there is this very important argument that individually, all of these different oil prospects will not have that effect. And of course they wouldn't because the climate change problem is a cumulative problem. Um, But we cannot look at it from this perspective uh, because if we do, then the way we regulate climate change would just not make sense at all. Because in that way, every state could say, well, we ourselves do not cause climate change, so we should not be doing anything. and that, of course, is uh, is problematic because environmental law in general, and especially international environmental law, historically has been developed uh, for transboundary problems, for environmental issues that we can see and that we can trace. Uh, you know, we have a trail smelting plant on one side of the border and pollution on the other side of the border, and we can pinpoint exactly where that pollution came from. Uh, climate change is different, and I think it requires creative um, and uh, and dynamic interpretation of um, environmental laws that we have. So with regards to environmental impact assessment, in Norway itself, and that has been touched upon by the court a little bit, the wording in what is required in environmental impact assessment is quite flexible in a Norwegian law and in the European law as well. So it would not preclude the regulator or the project proponent to include these effects into the environmental impact assessment. They just choose not to. So the courts can take this active step to at least try to um, make uh, the responsible actor include these effects into um, the environmental impact assessment process. Uh, So that would be 
that would be probably my answer. Shift in in political uh, opinion, and maybe you know, with with the recent developments and with Joe Biden in power, at least in the United States, that can be done. Speaking of creative solutions, and also speaking of the year being 2021, and we're recording this episode a few days after Biden's inauguration, one of the other solutions you uh, you explore on top of uh, strengthening or making more room in the EIA regime is also to do with the Paris Agreement's reporting mechanisms to increase accountability for fossil fuel development. Could you take us through this a little bit as well? Uh, yes, absolutely. So um, the the Paris Agreement creates quite a lot of uh, obligations in, in terms of reporting. Um, and climate treaties in general do not really deal with energy. Um, they do not deal with sectoral emissions. They just approach emissions as a whole, even though the energy sector is the biggest contributor uh, to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and um, in the Paris Agreement, uh, the main reporting instrument, of course, is uh, the NDC, the National Determined Contributions. And the idea of including information on petroleum production within the NDCs has been um, already discussed uh, quite a lot, so including by Harif and Aslan Kati Kulavesi. Um, and the inclusion of fossil fuel supply more broadly has also been discussed um, uh, by other authors. And the issue is that the content of NDCs is not really defined um, in the Paris Agreement. There are some guiding documents that's been adopted by the uh, conference of the parties. And we see that in, in some NDCs already, we do have uh, some um, reference uh, to uh, fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, for example, but not in, not in many. Uh, so I found some in Burkina Faso, uh, in Ghana's NDC, in India's first uh, NDC. And I look forward to the second round of NDCs being fully submitted to um, to analyze them all to see if maybe that dynamic um, has changed. Um, but I think that a, a, an appropriate uh, reporting instrument of fossil fuel supply uh, would be the biennial transparency reports that are required uh, by the Paris Agreement. And the first round of these reports uh, is due for submission by the end of 2024. So this is in line with the uh, Paris Agreement's framework for the transparency of action and support, and that is to provide clear understanding of climate change action in light of the objective on the UNFCCC, because this Enhanced Transparency Framework, or EDF, it is really the main mechanism by which we can hold states accountable for implementing their NDCs, because we don't really, as I said, have an obligation in the Paris Agreement uh, for states to uh, to meet their targets, but they can be scrutinized under this Enhanced Transparency Framework. So the compulsory element of these biennial transparency reports is information on actions, policies, and measures that support the implementation and the achievement on the NDCs. Um, so it could include um, all sorts of information, but I argue that it should include information on states' plans for fossil fuel production. But to in introduce the element of common but differentiated responsibilities here to, to uh, provide a reference to historical levels of production, compatibility of production, or further use of these resources with climate goals, and um, if there are any subsidies provided for these extraction activities. And that would provide much needed 
context, of course. Um, BTR could discuss the necessity of extraction in context of energy security and national economy, whether these resources are being extracted for domestic use um, or the, to avoid imports from somewhere else, or whether they are being extracted for export, and if so, well, where are they going? How are those countries where they're destined for dealing with climate change? Um, and they could in also include some measures for planned or managed decline in production, because we know that there needs to be decline in production with a view to just transition as well. So this would provide the context and that would also really differentiate countries between each other. So I would argue that um, a case for Greenland, for example, to start producing uh, fossil fuels in in terms of climate change, would be much stronger than for Norway to continue producing um, fossil fuels because Greenland's contribution to global climate change is negligent and uh, their need for uh, economic development and diversifying their economy is high. Uh, whereas for Norway, that argument would not really hold up so well anymore. Yeah, very, very interesting points you're making. And it's so, you know, important when, you know, analyzing natural resources. Yes, fossil fuels are contributing to um, emissions, but, but they also constitute, you know, significant export revenues for the countries, uh, like you mentioned with Greenland. So for those listeners that maybe don't have much of a background in the natural resources area, I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit about what you think characterizes natural resources in the Arctic compared to elsewhere in the world. For example, mm -hmm. like how it, how it influences development and the nature of extractions. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when we talk, I, I mostly talk about uh, offshore uh, resources here, and that is because um, we estimate quite a high number of uh, offshore resources in the Arctic after the famous discovery by the uh, United States Geological Survey back in 2008. We know that there is quite a lot of undiscovered oil, but also undiscovered natural gas and about 80 in the Arctic, and about 85% of those resources are located Uh, offshore. And um, of course, in terms of climate, the case for oil is much um, stronger than the case for gas, because gas is seen by many as a this transitional fuel. Um, we know that most of the resources are located um, in the Russian exclusive economic zone and continental shelf, um, because Russia has this very uh, large coastline. Um, we do estimate some resources in Greenland, in uh, Norway, in the United States, and in Canada as well. Um, so in, in terms of what is happening already, uh, Russia was the first to develop offshore um, oil resources in the Arctic, with its Pryozomnia rig since 2014. Um, and there are some uh, gas developments as well, and there's um, quite a lot of onshore activities with the further conversion of, of gas into liquefied form and, um, and their expert. But quite a lot of new oil discoveries in the Arctic offshore in Russia are on hold at the moment um, due to mostly low oil price, but also lack of access to foreign uh, capital and, and foreign equipment. Um, in Norway, uh, the oil uh, and gas production has been happening in the uh, Arctic waters already with the Goliath field and the snow wheat field. Um, there is another big uh, oil development that is uh, expected to start in a couple of years. And there are more and more licenses being, being given out in the Norwegian Arctic waters as well. Now, it's important to note that the Norwegian 
uh, Arctic waters are much milder in terms of uh, climatic um, circumstances um, and um, access to infrastructure and logistics than, for example, Norwegian or, or um, American Arctic in general. Um, sorry, Canadian or, or American Arctic. Um, in Greenland, um, we do not have any um, oil and gas activity at present. There have been some um, activities with regards to exploration, uh, but none of them were uh, pursued commercially. Um, in Canada, uh, no commercial development of offshore oil and gas resources in the Arctic and any new licenses are currently on hold because of the moratorium and new licenses that has been imposed by uh, Prime Minister Trudeau um, in, uh, I think it was 2016, together with, with Obama. Uh, and of course, the fate of the um, offshore oil in, in Alaska is uh, very unclear at the moment. The direction um, that Obama was, was leading before his departure was very much to uh, exclude the um, areas on the outer continental shelf of Alaska from um, licensing. Uh, President Trump, of course, took a very different turn. And what is going to happen now is, is very unclear. Of course, Alaska as a state has um, powers to uh, develop any uh, oil and gas resources up to three nautical miles uh, off its coast. Um, so that's sort of an overview of, of natural resources in, in the Arctic. And the difficulty of getting those resources out would depend on the region much easier to do in Norway than it is to do um, in the US but Arctic resources generally are some of the most expensive resources in the world to extract um, in some regions very difficult to get to the market so in Canada for example it would be extremely difficult to get those resources to the market um, and would require probably building quite a lot of um, additional infrastructure as well so this contributes to the argument that if we start developing Arctic resources really at the large scale, that we will probably have to develop quite a lot of them to make it worth it financially. Thanks, Daria. I guess the next question I would like to ask you is how to address this trope in the petroleum industry, that if Arctic countries restrict their oil and gas development, it will lead to more reliance on energy from countries with quote-unquote lower environmental standards? I mean, this is an argument that comes up quite a lot, and I see the point of it. Um, I would like to maybe respond here with a, uh, with a quote from uh, one of my favorite judges uh, in the world, Justice Preston, which uh, he has expressed in the um, in decision in Gloucester Resources, um, and uh, this is a case from Australia, and uh, it was regarding a um, a mine. Um, so he says, if a development will cause an environmental impact that is found to be unacceptable, the environmental impact does not become acceptable because a hypothetical and uncertain alternative development might also cause the same unacceptable environmental impact. So the arguments that I'm making in this article are not only aimed at the Arctic states. I use Arctic states as an example here because this is my area. I um, I can talk about it. And I, do, I, I think I do say it somewhere in the article as well, that this is really um, aimed at any country that is a, a big petroleum producer. It is time to, to stop and assess 
what we're doing. And this argument, as you're saying, you know, if, if we don't do it, someone else will do it. Um, it comes up quite a lot. It came up in the Norwegian case. It comes up in, in environmental impact assessment res- responses. But there are, you know, there are a number of um, issues with this argument. And I would like to now refer to um, a, an amazing paper that was done by my Australian colleagues, Justine Bell James and Brianna Collins, um, that debunks this uh, so-called market substitution assumption. So, you know, the first is this ethical argument that Justice Preston alludes to, you know, if something is wrong by saying that someone else might also do it, you're not really making it right. Um, there's also the oversimplification um, of of this argument in general, you know, what are the studies that the proponents of this argument have conducted in order uh, to make it? We really the the energy market does not really work like that. We do we are guided by the basic rules, of course, of supply and demand, uh, but these are not the only rules that govern the energy market. Um, if we uh, assume that any oil development will be substituted by other oil development or coal, for example, then yes, this argument stands. But we're completely ignoring the fact that, you know, these development might be actually substituted by less climatically impactful energy sources and natural gas, renewables, uh, nuclear energy. So this argument really allows for this deflection of responsibility for emissions through oversimplification of these supply-demand interactions. Um, And because this argument holds such strength, the burden of proof, I think, should be very high. And at least in the appeals court, in the Norwegian case, the court just referred to one scholarly article without really further considering counter-arguments to this. Um, And I am not saying that this argument will always be incorrect. In some cases, it will be correct. But I think there should be definitely more scrutiny uh, to that argument. So from the economics point of view, it is generally agreed that leaving in place high cost reserves would result in the um, reduction of total and early uh, emissions and that uh, these high cost reserves are usually associated with high extraction emissions and average options um, and it would be more cost efficient not to exploit them due to their smaller profit margin. As well, and as I already said, Arctic offshore resources are among some of the most expensive uh, to develop. So um, I also will allude to uh, again the problem of carbon locking. That if we do start developing them on a large scale, we will have to um, develop quite a lot to make some profitable returns. And what's happening quite a lot is that the the countries are actually providing companies with very favorable conditions just so they come and and explore these resources so in the uk um just to step away from from the arctic a little bit there uh, there is a policy um that is uh, promoting um more interest um for the industry the greenlandic approach to licensing was uh, quite favorable for companies as well um, so we need to think about how do we balance that with our climate goals. Um, and of course, again, coming back to the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities, some Arctic states had central roles in, um, in historic contribution to climate change, you know, including Canada, including uh, Russia and the United States, um, Norway and Greenland to much uh, lesser extent. Um, and some states really depend on their 
oil and gas experts, uh, like Russia does significantly, uh, Greenland would be uh, significantly, but uh, perhaps other states could uh, could step it up a bit more. So I'm not saying Arctic states are the only ones who are responsible, um, but they should definitely um, take steps to uh, to think about this issue, especially since the Arctic states are the ones who would be seeing the effects, already seeing the effects of the climate change uh, much more so than other economies around the world. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I was only like trying to play devil's advocate and also... Please do, please do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> also just trying to like uh, rehash a question that we hear all the time. Mm. Uh, so if we don't do it, others will. Yeah, so... Um sort of moving towards the future <laughs> mm-hmm. um we obviously you know um we're now at a turning point where you know uh, we have a new president of the u.s so that will be interesting to see what happens with the uh, oil and gas extraction there and what he's going to do but i was just wondering if we could get your input on sort of what how you see the future of oil and gas extraction in the arctic to be honest i don't really see a lot of it in the short term, um, because of um, of the price of oil, uh, significantly so, and because of the um, reduced demand that we have uh, due to COVID as well. So my hope is that um, all of these external factors um, combined with exceeding pressure to um, think about climate goals will curb the development of uh, Arctic uh, oil and gas. Now, of course, um, a concern here, uh, which has been expressed quite a lot and which I share, is that there are quite a lot of communities who depend on these developments. And even though most of the Arctic ocean resources are with, um, in terms of decision-making and jurisdiction, lie with the central governments, um, there are local communities who would suffer from lack of development of Arctic oil and gas resources. So if we think about Alaska, if uh, we think about maybe some communities in Canada as well, even though offshore resources decision-making lies with the federal government in Canada and with federal government in the US, um, such development would bring economic benefits, uh, employment, um, development of the industry to those local communities. Um, and this is the issue that we call you know, just transition, that if we want to transition to low carbon energy resources, we cannot leave those communities behind. Um, and that is something that I did not have a lot of space to address in my uh, paper and that I look forward to addressing in my future work. But I think that is something that we definitely need to think about and um, an informed and planned approach to fossil fuel phase out might be a good answer to making sure that those communities are not left behind. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Dasha. Just in closing, and uh, we're trying to be conscious of your time here, and maybe as a more lighthearted question as well, uh, from someone who lives in in the north of England to someone who lives in Scotland, Mm -hmm. uh, what is it like to to be an Arctic legal researcher in Scotland? Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) Um, it's it's great well there um scottish universities are really into uh northern research so uh, in aberdeen we had a north theme uh, of research for quite a while i work at a university where we have a very strong 
anthropology school that works on, on the Arctic issues quite a lot. We have an amazing team of natural scientists who work on climate issues and do research in uh, Greenland, for example, and um, some um, amazing research in the Antarctic as well. So I, um, I'm very fortunate to, to work in Scotland. There are some amazing scholars working on Arctic issues. Um, there is a wonderful center on climate justice uh, based in Glasgow Caledonian University. Um, I uh, am conscious that I'm not giving shout outs to, to all of the right people. There is an Arctic center in Durham. Um, uh, sorry, not Durham, St. Andrews. But in Durham as well, <laughs> that's not Scotland. Durham is not yet in <laughs> Sorry, I just thought yet. about you and I think about Durham immediately. Um, so I, um, I'm very fortunate to, to be working in Scotland. As you know, probably Scotland has released its Arctic policy, its own Arctic policy separately uh, from the UK. I think it was two years ago now. Um, and uh, there is definitely quite a lot of interest from the Scottish government uh, to support um science uh, in the arctic from scottish based researchers so it is it is great you should come over thank you so much it's been such a pleasure talking with you daria and hearing about your research we were wondering uh where can people find you online uh, twitter social media and such if they want to look you up um so i share full name with uh, another Daria Shapovalova, who is one of the prominent fashion figures uh, from Ukraine, and um, no way, you, that's so cool. yeah. If you just Google me, uh, you will probably find her. And a lot of my students um, ask me um, if I was an editor of Vogue in Ukraine before I came to Scotland, but that's not me. So I think if you Google me and Arctic uh, or and Aberdeen, you will probably find me then. So I'm I'm quite active on Twitter. Um, I try to um, share my work uh, through blogging, um, including on the Arctic Institute website. Um, so mostly, uh, mostly Twitter, if you want to reach out. And I do invite anyone to, who, who has any thoughts to share uh, to reach out uh, for a conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dasha. Thank you for uh, inviting me.